Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode refers to people who are deceased and contains now offensive historical references to Indigenous people. On 31st of January 1967, John Lennon was taking a break from filming in Kent when he spied, bought and took home a promotional poster from a local antique shop. It was an ad from February 1843 advertising a benefit held for a Mr Kite and performed by Pablo Fanke's Circus Royale. The poster turned out to be a fantastic inspiration. Being for the benefit of Mr Kite was soon penned and recorded, appearing as track number seven on the phenomenal Beatles album, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. For the benefit of Mr Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Hendersons will all be there, later Pablo Bank is there, what a scene. Over men and horses, hoops and garters, lastly through a hogshead of real fire. Okay, so everyone has heard of the Beatles, but probably almost no one, unless you're a Beatles fanatic, has heard of Pablo Fanke before. A few years back, some clever folk tracked down the story of Pablo Fanke. In the mid-19th century, considered by many to be the golden age of circus, Pablo earned his way as a skilled juggler, acrobat and equestrian performer. He was also a circus proprietor, which is particularly significant because Pablo wasn't white. He was black and is the first non-white person we know about to own a circus in Britain. But Pablo had a kind of counterpart right here in Australia. Born around 1842 in the inland New South Wales town of Dubbo, this counterpart went by the name of Billy Jones and the stage name Little Nugget and sometimes Young Pablo. But Jones wasn't actually his original name and neither was he of Indian descent like Pablo. No, Billy Jones a.k.a. Little Nugget, he was Aboriginal. Welcome to Dead and Buried, a podcast that delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne and beyond. I'm Carly Godden. And I'm Lee Hooper. episode we trace the story of two Joneses, Billy and John. As a young boy, Billy Jones cut his teeth working in John Jones's circus, a circus which incidentally became mixed up in perhaps the most important rebellion in Australian history. Billy, an equestrian performer and tightrope walker of Aboriginal descent, would travel Australia and garner fame and acclaim from fans and fellow circus people. Well my office well, the office that I am deemed to allow to have the keys to uh, is in the old Melbourne jail. This is the old hospital and the admin wing and the chapel is upstairs. When I first arrived here as an Aboriginal person, the first Deputy Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous, there was with great excitement that I was told, oh, my God, we're putting you in the great part of the university. And I said, oh, cool. Like, I thought I'd have some friggin' office tower with a view over the city. Nah, nah. They said, and with glee, uh, we're going to put you in the old jail. And I just, I was, I was being cheeky, but a little bit, 
wounded. It's like, stop, think about what you're saying. Um, because ironically, when I look out windows, there's country all around here. There's, there's That's Professor Mark McMillan. Mark is a proud Wiradjuri man of the Aboriginal sovereign tribe that we believe Billy Jones was also descended from. As we said before, Billy Jones, a performer of Aboriginal heritage, was billed as an Australian version of Pablo Fanke, who was English and black. This kind of historical practice of presenting Aboriginal performers as other exotic, non-Anglo ethnicities is of particular interest to Mark, who, amongst other things, has written widely about Aboriginal identity. So we bring the elders over here because it's the RMIT meeting rooms. And the the elders have actually noted their discomfort. There's other people here and, you know, we know it. Everybody knows it. And, you know, the, the question that we have is what is our comfort levels in existing with it? Mark's office at RMIT University is in the Old Melbourne Jail, a place where both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, including a certain bushranger whom we'll talk about down the track, were executed. It's in the vicinity of where Aboriginal resistance fighters Tana Minoue and Morbohina were hanged, which, as Judge Wills, who passed their sentence, said, was a warning to other Aboriginal people contemplating resisting British settlement. But as Mark explained, you can still inhabit this place, even with its dark history, and particularly as a site where matters pivotal to the relationship between British settlers and First Nation people took place. It's all about how you're able to sit with this knowledge and process it. I've been here for 18 months now and I'm actually really comfortable. It is a great space to be in it. But it also is the ongoing opportunity for me to reflect about the relationship itself. And that that doesn't mean it always has to be good, but it also means it doesn't have to be bad either. We'll hear more from Mark McMillan later. So turning back to the Sergeant Pepper's connection. Yeah, how did you find that? Well, it actually wasn't from listening to the Beatles or reading about them. Yeah, I have to say. Uh, it's from being a history nerd. So I kind of came across it from this man. My name is Mark Valentine St. Leon. My parents call me Mark because you can't abbreviate the name. And I was given the middle name of Valentine because I was born on St. Valentine's Day. And the name St. Leon happens to be the name of one of Australia's earliest and oldest circus families. Uh, about my long-standing interest in Australian circus history, well, naturally it came about because my family originally were circus people and um, I was curious about the circus past uh, for as long as I can remember, even though I wasn't uh, brought up in the circus myself. And as I grew up, curiosity got the better of me and about 17 I started looking into things seriously. That's almost 50 years ago. Mark's first source of information about this unique family history was his cousins, who couldn't tell him much. Although, they did put him onto another cousin who might know more, a distant relation he'd never met before. In 1969, Mark St. Leon wrote him a polite letter. And um, I was so uh, inept, I didn't even sign my name Mark, I signed my name M.V. St. Leon. <laughs> and, uh, but back came uh, a week or so later, a very nice uh, two or three page letter, which I've still got somewhere, and uh, he outlined for me um, what he knew of the um, the family history, and things kicked on from there. When I first started my research, um, uh, one of my first uh, ports of call was to look uh, through things such as the Encyclopaedia Britannica, hoping I could find something, and lots of sources like that. And although they had a long entry on circus, it was mostly to do with 
uh, what happened in America and Britain. Nothing happened here in Australia. But I reasoned to myself, well, a circus, uh, if it's going to move around the country, it's got to advertise and it's going to place advertisements in newspapers. So there were no indexes or any records like that to guide me. So I called up these volumes of the Sydney Morning Herald and any other newspaper I could think of around about the period I thought the circus was at the peak of its glory. And I must have uh, worked through uh, several months of uh, doing this, you know, going to the State Library in Sydney uh, several times a week. And finally, uh, I got to an issue of the Wagga Wagga Express, 1879, opened it up, and here was an advertisement for St Leon's Big Show. But where did it all begin? Just who was Mark's great-great-grandfather and why the name St Leon? It was quite a mystery to me. Uh, up until the age of 17, I, I just thought the name was French and somehow we were connected to French aristocracy, but it, uh, a circus family, family being connected to French aristocracy didn't quite make sense and uh, triggered a lot of my early investigations. And uh, bit by bit, I worked out that my great-great-grandfather, who I knew by the name of Matthew St. Leon, was in fact a convict who'd been landed in Australia under the name of John Jones. And then, about uh, 1865, he takes the professional name of St Leon because, obviously, that sounds a bit more sexy on the bills than simply Jones. And so St Leon uh, was the uh, name the family worked under and uh, named the circus St Leon Circus. And over time, it just became the naturally accepted family name. But um, about 100 years later, I was born, and by the time I, ca- I came along, I'm the fifth generation of the family, so much uh, stories, lies, innuendos, embellishments, um, exaggerations had built up, caked up, that uh, I was just faced with a huge job of uh, taking this all apart. I did get down to the Jones bit and all of that, but I could never find out who his people were, where he came from, how he actually got into uh, the the equestrian and tumbling business. And it's only with uh, the massive, absolutely massive um, explosion of uh, the internet with the availability of online newspapers and uh, online DNA testing that I've gradually whittled it down by deduction as to who he was. And he was the illegitimate son of a famous Irish jockey called Patrick Connolly, who'd won the Epsom Derby in England twice. And uh, the mother was a daughter of the uh, British aristocracy, who was a first cousin once removed of Lord Liverpool, the British Prime Minister. So we have a little boy, born out of wedlock, fathered by a low-bred Irish Catholic jockey, and mothered by a lady of the English upper class. This meant his presence wasn't particularly appreciated, so he was fostered and eventually apprenticed out as a London chimney sweep. But uh, in his off hours as a chimney sweep in London, uh, he practised tumbling. You know, kids used to get together in the park and in the streets and, and tumble. And he was, for the first ten years of his life, brought up in Newmarket, the English racing town. And the story in the family was that he was, uh, he'd worked in the stables of the King of England, so he learned a lot about horses at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine 
or chimney sweeping what he liked, but he fortunately this chimney sweep was a respectable chimney sweep. He used to sweep the chimneys of Buckingham Palace and so on, so somebody was sort of looking over him. But of course, after seven years of chimney sweeping, he couldn't wait to uh, get out of that. And so the day his apprenticeship was over, he uh, quickly moved out, And uh, but hardly being able to read or write because he'd received so very little education. He was forced to uh, steal, and uh, he was quite an honest chap, but being honest doesn't help you to be a very effective thief. And he was soon nabbed and um, taken before the Old Bailey and sentenced to seven years' transportation to Australia. Just to be clear, we're talking about John Jones, not Billy Jones, who sometimes borrowed the name Thanky. Obviously, there's a link between Billy and Jones. I mean, they share the same surname after all, but we'll get to that later. John Jones arrived in Hobart, Tasmania in 1843. At that time, detailed records of the physical appearance of convicts were kept in case they reoffended, which was somewhat fortunate for Mark when he was researching his great-great-grandfather, over 170 uh, years later. He, uh, on arrival in Hobart Town at the age of uh, 20, he was 4 feet 11 and a half inches. Now, people generally were shorter in those days anyway, but that is short. As Mark explained, the records of convicts transported to Australia are usually littered with the details of further offences they committed, for which they endured penalties like being put in stocks. But the record for John Jones is comparatively clean. I mean, sure, he was once placed in solitary confinement for falling asleep at his post as a night watchman, but that's about the very worst thing he'd ever did. I did speak many, many years ago. I did speak to people who knew my great-grandfather and they told me that he was a sterling character, never drank or swore, uh, never attended a church service, but uh, otherwise a very, very uh, upright character. And I think this goes back to the new market upbringing. So he was brought up with this uh, upstanding sort of air about him. In July 1847, John Jones got his ticket of leave, which is sort of equivalent to being on parole nowadays. He started performing as a dancer and acrobat with Radford's Royal Circus in Launceston, Tasmania. Radford's, which consisted of a pavilion out the back of Radford's hotel, was the very first circus to operate in Australia. The following year, John Jones married Margaret Monaghan. And, you know, he's quite clearly punching above his weight. Dublin-born Margaret was an educated woman. Then, along with Irish-born rope walker Edward La Rosia, Jones opened the Royal Australian Equestrian Circus at Malcolm's Hotel, the Adelphi in Sydney. But these types of permanent circus venues were soon superseded. Why? Because of Gold Rush. You know, Australian history, 1850s, something, something, just say Gold Rush. Nine times out of ten, that'll be the right answer. Yeah, if only I was a gambler and there was some kind of betting market for Australian history trivia. Mm, if only. <laughs> That'd be a huge market. Massive. Mm. You can find out more about the origins of the gold rush in our episode, The Sweet By and By. We won't talk about that right now, except to say that with loads of folks heading to the gold fields, the circus, they went where the people were. John Jones went and joined Henry Burton's circus and headed to the diggings in Bathurst, New South Wales. 
Back then, travelling out bush was tough going. There are established routes, but not really any roads. They were tracks, and sometimes uh, there's stories about the circus people proceeding along through the bush in a line of wagons, and on the last wagon they'd tie a log on a rope to mark out the track, so if they got lost they'd be able to find their way back. Uh, if they got to rivers like the, um, the Murrumbidgee or the Murray or one of those big rivers, uh, they'd, uh, if it was shallow enough, they'd ford, they'd ford the river, they'd just drive the wagons through the, uh, through the water at the other side. Occasionally at, at Albury on the Murrumbidgee there, was, uh, there were flat boats they could put the circus on, I think something like a punt and, uh, and take the circus across. Uh, of course, if they got up into far north Queensland then they had to put up with the possibility of uh, crocodiles. Yeah. So before they'd uh, cross the North Queensland River they'd get all their cornets and drums and things out and beat the cymbals and things and try to frighten the crocodiles away. I don't know if it worked or not. Crocs weren't the only hazard you could encounter on the road during the gold rush times. There might be bushrangers. Now, how do we explain what bushrangers are if you're not from Australia, Lee? Yep, so if you're from the UK, they're more like highwaymen. Yeah, I guess if you're from the US, maybe it's like bandits if you're thinking about kind of Wild West. Yeah, yeah. the Wild Wild West. The Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it's like, what are they there? On land, land pirates. Land pirates. Yeah. So they're on land and they're like robbing people. Land pirates, yeah. Okay. That checks out. <laughs> Rad. Well, the bushrangers, uh, there are a few interesting stories uh, connected with the circus. Um, Henry Burton's uh, circus, they were travelling along the Lachlan River in central western New South Wales about, uh, about 1861-62. And uh, uh, a whole line of uh, circus wagons, maybe, I don't know, maybe about 10 or 12 circus wagons. And uh, all of a sudden, they, they rounded a, a bend uh, on this uh, track and uh, who should be waiting for them but uh, some bush rangers and uh, one of the bush rangers came out on his horse and uh, said something like stand and deliver and uh, so uh, Mr Burton had to call a halt and um, explain that um, they weren't uh, carrying a gold uh, a, a bullion or anything like that they were just circus people wandering from town to town and um, fortunately, the, the uh, bushrangers all had a laugh uh, to themselves, and one signaled the other, it's only a circus, and uh, waved them through. Unbeknown to the bushrangers is that the previous night's takings were stored in a chest uh, underneath one of the wagons. But apparently, that's not the only time a circus company had a run in with bushrangers. Although Mark hasn't been able to verify the facts, According to a family story, the St Leon family circus was performing somewhere down in New South Wales Riverina when Ned Kelly, the most famous bushranger of them all and a few of his gang, rocked up and came in under the tent to watch. They sat up in the seats, trying to look as nondescript as possible, when several policemen walked in. As the story goes, Kelly and his gang quietly slipped under the seats, snuck out under the tents and disappeared off into the bush. While it might be tempting to paint a romantic picture of circus skills being passed down from generation to generation, the thing about circus families, 
which probably still holds true in some cases today, is that trading started young. And that's one reason why you have circus families, because mum and dad uh, produce one kid after another and train them as uh, circus performers. Um, but some uh, people didn't have kids or they didn't have enough kids, and so uh, they looked around for young kids that they could uh, uh, obtain from anywhere. In the 1850s, lots of uh, men folk had run off to the gold rushes and abandoned their families, and so there were lots of waifs running around the streets of Sydney and Melbourne, so uh, uh, many of them got snapped up. They had to be, you know, the right physical proportion and, uh, and so on. You, you couldn't just have, have any kid. As Mark St Leon explained, as the circus travelled into the interior, they expanded this practice of adopting children born from sexual relations between settler men and Aboriginal women. Well, Little Nugget, as far as we can establish, was born uh, in the area of uh, Dubbo or Bathurst, somewhere up in the general vicinity, about the year 1842, 1843, 44. And as near as we can see, he must have been fathered by uh, a white stockman or, or convict or ex-convict worker by uh, an Aboriginal woman. He was... Uh, adopted by uh, uh, Henry Burton when he visited the area uh, about 1851. By that time, this little boy was about uh, seven or eight years of age. In 1851, John Jones had established his own circus. Mark believes that it was at this time that John Jones had adopted Little Nugget from Henry Burton to perform in his own circus. Little Nugget even took on John's surname, Jones. How is it that you can just pick up an Aboriginal child and own them? Like, it's, it's, it's nuts to think about. It, it, well, it drives you to insanity if you actually try to dwell on it for too long. But that was, that, was the, that time. You're hearing again from Mark McMillan. Henry Burden and John Jones were travelling through a part of New South Wales in Wurundjeri country. So the Wiradjuri Nation is probably one of the biggest nation groups on the East Coast. When you start to think about it in geographic size, it is really it's just probably just a little bit under the eighth of all of New South Wales. And it is we're bounded by the three rivers, which is the Womble or the Macquarie to the north, um, and to the Calair, which is the Lachlan, and the Murrumbidgee, and then as the Murrumbidgee flows into the Lower Darling, um, there is the bottom border, which is um, the Murray itself. Our practices are long-standing since time immemorial, and I think there has been a very important reinvigoration of Wiradjuri practices. So I asked Mark what relationships had been like between settlers and Wurundjeri leading up to this period in the 1840s and 50s. Time period we're talking about is 1840s, 1850s? Yeah, really shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was because eradication was the intent. When you actually th look, go through the colonial records, uh, what happened at Hartley, which is at the base of the Blue Mountains, uh, there was this very expressed uh, desire and mission statement by one of the governor of New South Wales at the time to um, to basically uh, fertilise the land of the um, Wiradjuri nation with Wiradjuri. So it, there was that that spells intent, and it was around the time frame that you're talking about. So settler uh, Wiradjuri relations were really terrible, uh, and deliberately so. 
By the 1850s, the Wiradjuri, who had, and in some places were continuing to survive the frontier violence, were now dealing with other aspects of settler expansion. Many white men departed for the goldfields, and in places like Dubbo, with an emergent wool and cattle industry, Aboriginal women, men and children became an even more important source of labour on farms and, on occasion, in the circus. So, that gives you a very broad sense of the context in which Billy and John Jones were living. But what about on a more personal level? While we can't know what the relationship between them was really like, there is some evidence in the colonial records of how they navigated these broader forces. Little Nugget's performances as a bareback rider caused such a furor that uh, one of the diggers uh, offered uh, my great-great-grandfather the sum of 1,000 pounds for Little Nugget uh, and his horse. It sounds ridiculous, but this was the way it was reported. But then my great-great-grandfather, I remember I, I said that he'd spent seven years as a chimney sweep and seven years as a, uh, as a transported, well, no, but four years as a transported convict. He, uh, he, uh, he, re- he rejected the offer and said, uh, no, we haven't got to slavery out here yet. He had so much more agency because he was part of the circus. John Jones set up shop in Melbourne and then Geelong when gold fever broke out in Victoria near towns like Bendigo and Ballarat. So he made a deal with another circus owner, the American John Sutherland Noble, that every three months they would rotate either staying put in Geelong or touring the gold fields. So John Jones and Billy Jones are on tour. They're doing shows and they're making money. But not everything is plain sailing. See, there's a bit of an issue with diggers being made to pay for a miner's licence, which costs almost as much as a weekly wage. Not to mention that there's corruption amongst the police ranks when it comes to checking and enforcing the licences. When Jane Scobie, a miner, was murdered outside the Bentley Hotel, well, things started to get really intense and brutal. Despite a strong case against them, the hotel keeper and four other men who denied their involvement walked free. The miners who are angry with this decision, well, they go and burn down the Bentley's hotel. And then on Bakery Hill, the Ballarat Reform League is formed, who unsurprisingly, demand reform by way of abolition of the licences and universal suffrage for men, among other things. Okay, so a lot of you will see where this is all headed, to the burning of licences, the building of a stockade and the raising of the Eureka flag. But as for John Jones, well, he teamed up with old mate John Noble and another American circus owner, William Foley, and together they decided to shift their entire operation to Ballarat, Right in the middle of things. When things were starting to get a bit heated between the diggers and the, um, the licensing police over the gold licensing issue. And, of course, there were some monster meetings of uh, the diggers. And uh, there is a, a reference to a monster meeting of uh, diggers taking place in a, in a large tent, which sounds like uh, a circus tent, because on Ballarat they, they were using a tent. They weren't, uh, they weren't using a um, timber pavilion. But even more fascinating was what happened to the German musicians. A group of ex-convicts with a particularly fierce reputation, known as the Tipperary Boys, rolled down to the circus and threatened the musicians at gunpoint, making them march with them up to the top of the hill where the famous makeshift stockade was being built. The Germans were forced to serenade the diggers, who were building the fortress for hours, until it was finally completed. 
The German bandsman wrote of the experience years later. Their words are read out by a voice actor. Up the road we went, playing our liveliest march. It was a strange sight. A constantly increasing body of men, clad in the greatest variety of garments, from the moleskins of the miner straight from the shaft to the extravagant garments and colours of the goldfields dandy. Men of all nations and colours. The most mixed assemblage of men that could be imagined. Some defiantly swaggering, others evidently marching under compulsion. All escorted triumphantly by the Tipperary boys, who dominated the situation by their weapons. So we marched up Bakery Street, impressing on every man we saw into service, taking no denial and no delay until we arrived at Eureka, where the miners had formed their camp. Here we were added to the hundreds already at work, and very soon every man was found a job in the building of the stockade. The band was forced to liven the men at work until at last the rude defence was completed. What also happened is that the, uh, the diggers, they, uh, they used the circus to uh, store all their ammunition uh, because they thought it would be safe there. The, uh, the police wouldn't think of uh, going in there looking for uh, stores of guns and ammunition. And then I think the following uh, morning, that's when uh, the police and uh, militia arrived from Melbourne and stormed the, uh, the Eureka Stockade in the early hours of a Sunday morning while most of the diggers were asleep at their posts and, uh, and quickly overran the, uh, the fortress. So uh, my great-great-grandfather's circus uh, was written into the pages of circus history. As to whether Billy Jones was also in Ballarat for the Eureka Stockade events, well, we don't have any direct evidence of this. But we do have newspapers which document that Billy was with John Jones's circus in the months before and after the stockade, so there's a good chance Billy was right there with him. Even though the Eureka Stockade was a military failure, in many other ways it was a victory. Mining licences were abolished and universal suffrage was introduced so that all men and by that I mean men only, could vote. As Mark McMillan explains, with circuses being comprised of performers, which today we might call multicultural, the circus played a significant role in disseminating other cultures at a time when Australia was distinguishing its own identity. That, that, you know, we'd had the Rum Rebellion in New South Wales, um, you'd had the Eureka Stockade. All of these things were starting to say we had a distinct identity which wasn't British. You know, because the British rejected most of our inhabitants, whether you're Aboriginal or convict. And so you're, you're going, that took a while to percolate and actually what was its foundation? And I think the foundations were being solidified, you know, they were strengthening um, through the 1850s. And you've got these moments of reckoning and how was that reflected back? It wasn't just about a union movement or a people's movement. How did word get around if not through performance? So performance, the circus actually was taking places around to other places in Australia like no other. So if the circus had this incredible impact on communities and nation building, why is this not more widely recognised today? Um, there's a lot about circus which is naturally aligned with the Australian way of life. It's physical, it's outdoor, it's non-intellectual, uh, it's uh, all-inclusive, uh, things like that. So in principle, it, it, it should be naturally aligned with the Australian values, the Australian uh, ethos, however that's to be defined. But uh, nevertheless, there's this, there's this uh, gypsy uh, ambience about circus, the fact that 
circus people are coming from somewhere else and they might visit our town, but they don't belong to our town. And I have to say, quite frankly, that some circuses are appalling, of an appalling standard, uh, and uh, don't give um, much credit to the name. So uh, people have a, gradually uh, have a much greater menu of uh, entertainment. Another thing is that uh, we no longer rely on the horse the way we once did back in the 19th century. Just about everybody uh, rode a horse or could relate to a horse, but uh, with the introduction of the automobile, that affinity was gradually lost. So it's pretty interesting about the whole negative Gypsy Roma Association. We actually talked about that in our very first episode. Yeah, I know. It's interesting that there's the same situation applied here. Although... You know, I've got another theory. Maybe it's just people are far less talented today. And, you know, I mean, I can barely do anything. I can maybe do a forward roll. Can you do one now? Uh, I'll show you later. Okay. Anyhow, back to John Jones. With the gold rushes dying down and more permanent settlements forming, he decided to take a different tact. Large circuses had fallen out of favour, so he decided to downsize. With three small boys of his own, he didn't have to look very far for new talent. John Jones set aside a few years to train and nurture their skills. One of their first gigs was at the classy Theatre Royale in Melbourne. This is when they took on the suitably classy name, St Leon. But the family troupe eventually outgrew the place, so to speak. But then uh, as the boys grew, eventually they were big enough and my great-great-grandfather says, OK, it's time to get back into the circus business. We don't have to call ourselves Jones anymore. We are calling ourselves St Leon Circus. There are two ways to, uh, to build a circus, either... Uh, borrow big and spend a whole lot of money and um, hope that you'll make a profit or just start off small and uh, build up slowly uh, as you go from town to town. And my great-great-grandfather took the second route and just started off uh, from Melbourne in 1875 and they just worked up, uh, just maybe with a couple of wagons and horses up through Victoria, New South Wales, up into Queensland. And then uh, about 18 months, two years later, returned from Queensland and by this time it's a fully fledged circus uh, maybe 15 or 20 performers, a band and so on mm. and uh, from there they just went to strength, from strength to strength uh, it was uh, by the late 1870s, early 1880s it was uh, Australia's biggest circus and there are some fascinating um, advertisements for the circus for example when they played Wollongong in 1883 the uh, it was announced the circus would give a parade consisting of 150 men and horses, <laughs> as though horses were such an important commodity that they were equated with, uh, with humans. Um, but the circus parade was meant to extend uh, about a half a mile in length, and one of the newspaper men took the trouble to actually measure out the start of the circus parade to the end of the circus parade and found that it was actually true that it was about half a mile in length. And Billy Jones? How did he get on? Well, he became well known for his agility and versatility in his performances. He was famous not only as a bareback rider, but became a rope walker. And uh, Billy Jones uh, uh, was famous as a, uh, not only as a bareback rider, but uh, uh, became a, a rope walker. Uh, there's stories of how uh, in Hobart, about 1863, uh, 1866, I should say, he... Um, he, he was visiting uh, Hobart with uh, William Foley's Californian Circus and uh, a rope was strung up from the circus tent pole across Argyle Street 
to the, I think it must be the Theatre Royal on the other side of the street. And uh, after the performances, people were coming out of the circus. Here they could see uh, Billy Jones, who had been performing in the circus uh, early in the evening as an acrobat and bareback rider, uh, walking across uh, this rope uh, high in the air with a, a pole to, to balance himself across. As kids, Billy Jones and Master Bruce, who was the other Aboriginal child adopted by John Jones, had been unashamedly billed as Aboriginal boys. Far from concealing their employment, Jones and some other circus proprietors actively promoted them. Partially, this took a leaf out of the English circus tradition of presenting a token black or mulatto performer. For newly arrived settlers, Aboriginal people are also seen as somewhat exotic. There were performances. I mean, it, it wasn't just the flora and fauna, it was actually the people that were now considered exotic. So you're human, but you're not human enough, or you're human on the extremity. So it was a, a particular type of placing that you could only be close enough, but you were always considered an outsider or a freak or something uh, worth being looked at, gawked at, performing to. But by the late 1860s, things had changed. The practice of billing Aboriginal performers as Aboriginal had fallen out of favour. Why? When Aboriginal people were going into performance, they started to actually unsettle what it meant to be Aboriginal. So, of course, you know, you had language like, oh, well, they're quite Brazilian or they're coloured or they're... what they could never be was Aboriginal or Wiradjuri. According to Mark, this pandering by circuses to settler sensibilities helped maintain the fiction of terra nullius. That is, that the British had settled a land belonging to no one. After all, if you denied Aboriginal people their identity, you could kid yourself that they were never really here as sovereign societies in the first place. It was about how Aboriginality itself could be performed and who got to call it, which is, you know, who got to bill it, who got to... Um, you know, who were the stars? Well, they were Brazilian or they were Spanish or they were coloured. They weren't native or they weren't Aboriginal or they certainly weren't Wiradjuri, you know. So, because Wiradjuri was then inculcated in that moment of... To identify as Wiradjuri meant um, something quite particular and something that needed to not exist. So you can start to see why uh, performances... Were, you couldn't have Aboriginal performers... Apart from Billy Jones, at its peak in the 1880s, St Leon's did not carry any Aboriginal performers. The reduced reliance on Aboriginal performers can potentially be explained by the expansion of protectionist laws designed to control and contain Aboriginal people and their movements. The laws separated full-blood and so-called half-caste Aboriginal people. Really, once you start to step into what the protection and the board was trying to do was to protect the purity of the full bloods so that because we were regarded as being so backward that we would breed out because we just weren't civilized human enough to actually have a continual space in what it would be considered in that modern society. Arguably, the government's protectionist policies worked to reinforce the practice of circus people denying their Aboriginal identity. Into the 1900s and beyond, it was now standard for them to bill and present themselves as Spanish, Hawaiian or some other persona, which was white. If you have any drop of white, that will make you more capable of being more human. So they were moving, they were regulating whiteness in 
rather than eradicating Aboriginality for, because whiteness was not just virtuous, it was the only way that you could be in the world. Jones appeared with almost every Australian circus of note as an equestrian, juggler, acrobat, rope walker and even a ringmaster, which by the way was the job that some women managed to land as well. But as a performer, Billy grew in other ways too. And as he kept getting older and older, he kept getting fatter and fatter. But uh, he still performed with the same uh, adeptness uh, as an acrobat and uh, as he had as a kid. And uh, towards the end of his life and career, he was performing in, uh, in Fitzgerald Circus. This is in Sydney, about 1893 or so. And in those days, Fitzgerald Circus was Australia's biggest circus. One of the tricks that um, Billy Jones used to perform, despite his rotund proportions, was to uh, uh, somersault across one horse and then they'd bring a second horse out two horses and then three horses and so on. Uh, I think he ended up somersaulting across, I don't know, 10 or 12 horses, probably used a springboard. As for John Jones, not everyone in the family was so keen on the circus way of life. Uh, His wife, uh, I don't know, maybe she didn't like the travelling or uh, whatever the reason, but she settled in Melbourne and he continued on with the circus. It was just a bit rude, but one of my cousins made a, a joke that um, every time he came to Melbourne, a few months later, another <laughs> child would appear. But anyway, she stayed in Melbourne, and apparently she was quite a religious woman. She was uh, a Baptist or in the Salvation Army or something. And uh, the two girls weren't allowed to travel with the circus because it wasn't proper, and they had a, a proper education at a ladies' college. While we know much about what Billy Jones achieved as a performer, frustratingly, we have very little information about his personal life. Mark St. Leon believes that Billy had a first wife named Mary, although we know little about her background, and there's no records that they were ever formally married. Mary and Billy had a son, Frederick, whose birth may or may not have been registered. The only possible evidence found by Mark of a birth was for a Frederick born to William and Mary Jones in 1890. But that would have made Billy 48 years old at the time of Frederick's birth. What happened to this first union? We don't know. Although Billy stated that he was a widower when he married his much younger second wife, Maggie, of which we have their marriage certificate. By this time, Billy, once described in newspapers as the Henry Parks of Australian circus life, he was long past his glory days. But the story goes that uh, eventually uh, Billy Jones uh, got to... uh old for circus life and the story was that he retired uh, to Mount Morgan in uh, Queensland and uh, uh, driving a a stagecoach Um, but somehow he was brought back to Sydney uh, in 1905 uh, to appear with uh, Fitzgerald Brothers Circus as sort of a some sort of token, I guess, uh, uh, come and see old Billy Jones because he was quite a, a famous, quite a popular performer. About a year later, on the 4th of July 1906, Billy Jones passed away at the age of 64. His one-time employer, Dan Fitzgerald, wrote, Jones possessed the mind and energy to plan and execute the organisation of a great circus. He knew every bit of harness and property, every strap and buckle, rope, seat and pole in the Fitzgerald Circus, and could train both its horses and human performers in their various circus tricks. 
Billy's passing was noted in newspapers across Australia and as far away as New York. He was buried in Rookwood Cemetery in, uh, in Sydney, one of the big cemeteries in Sydney. Uh, and there were stories or, or appeals in the uh, show business press that uh, Billy Jones uh, deserves a, uh, a substantial monument, a gravestone in his honour. Um, but I've been out to, uh, to Rookwood several times looking where apparently he's buried. There's nothing there. John Jones continued to enjoy fame right up to the twilight years. But then again... But uh, as far as my great-great-grandfather, he was just a circus man through and through and uh, he just uh, almost until the last year of his life, he just kept uh, travelling and travelling. About a year before he, he died, he finally came back and settled with one of his daughters in Melbourne. Well, I don't think he knew any other life. Mm. And just like Billy Jones, he was buried in an unmarked grave. And that's what happened to many circus people. My own great-great-grandfather um, buried in Springvale uh, in uh, Melbourne in 1903. Um, he had a, quite a big send-off. The big circus band played at his uh, requiem at his grave, but uh, there was no gravestone ever erected over his grave, and I took the initiative many, many years later to uh, spend $500 on a metal plaque, uh, which you can see there now, uh, on his gravestone. This episode was produced, researched and written by me, Carly Godden, with production support and editing by Lee Hooper. Mixing, audio production and the original score was by Christian O'Brien. Connor Gallagher was our voice actor and our Dead and Buried theme music is by Robin Waters. You can find the full list of music credits on our website. You can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com. Connect with us on social media and discover more Dead and Buried episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Even better, leave a review to help spread the word. Season 2 of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its Arts Funding and Advisory Body and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. <laughs>